This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is sponsored by the British Columbia Chapter of the Directors Guild of Canada. Learn more about BC's stellar directors at www.directors.ca. That's www.directors.ca. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash podcast. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. I'm your host, Sabrina Furminger. My mission is to pull back the curtain on Vancouver's film and television industry and expose its beating heart, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom style, by getting deep and down and a little dirty with the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work. Capital T, capital W. Today, we welcome Namisha Mukherjee to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Did I say your name right? You did. Namisha yeah, because it's not like I'm like we've been talking for years. Yeah, and Namisha I feel like Mukherjee. we talked for like almost like half an hour before. It's <laughs> Namisha Mukherjee. Mukherjee. Yeah, but people call you Mish. People call me Mish. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna call you Namisha, and then I'm gonna call you Mish. Okay, <laughs> that's cool. okay. Yeah. Okay, good. And that's one of those things that we're going to just leave in because it shows some <laughs> some insight into my chaotic brain. All oh, right, and so, into my life as well. Yeah. <laughs> Mispronouncing. Names are important, though. It's important to pronounce names people's names correctly. Names are important. I appreciate that you wanted to get it right. Yeah. It means a lot. Okay. Namisha Mukherjee. You are an award-winning producer and director for film and television. And you're... I'm going to switch back to the... <laughs> okay. Whose work has been featured on National Geographic, Vice, and OWN. Her debut feature, 65 Red Roses, was commissioned by the CBC and was one of the first official selections by Oprah Winfrey. Yes, that Oprah Winfrey for her documentary club. 65 Red Roses told the story of Ava Mark... Mark Fort's journey. See, I can't do names today. I almost stumbled over Oprah Winfrey's names. Anyway, we told the story of Ava Mark Fort's journey from CF warrior to double lung transplant recipient and ultimately to chronic rejection and her death in 2010 at 25 years old. Her other features include Blood Relative, a poignant film about thalassemia. Thalassemia? Fuck. You got it. I'm talking about such serious things too. Thalassemia. Yeah? Yeah, you got oh, it. God, okay. This is, this is, uh, I've got some tough things that I've had to you deal do. with. You yeah, do. in my work. Oh, so. no, there's some uh, tough things and other tough things for me to have to say coming up. Okay. Thalassemia patients in India, and it screened in Vancouver, New York, and Paris, and Tempest Storm, and at once entertaining and deeply moving documentary about an octogenarian burlesque performer in Nevada who has done a hell of a lot of living and other stuff in her journeys around the sun. Namisha is also directing episodic television, mostly in the family entertainment realm, but she's also casting a wider net too, which I'm sure we will talk about today. She's won awards and grants and opportunities from big name organizations like Women in Film and Television Vancouver, Crazy Eights, Telefilm, TIFF and Bravo Fact. And even yesterday, I received a press release that Namisha is one of the participants in Women in the Director's Chair Story Lab, developing the dramatic series Reign of Durga. So today, I want to pull together all of these pieces and figure out just exactly who Namisha actually is as a storyteller. I want to talk about what she's put out into the world and where she's going to take us next. Documentary? Narrative? Who the hell knows? What do you want? Also, I want to talk about Oprah because, well, Oprah! Namisha Mukherjee. Yeah, Mama O. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, I am delighted to have you here today. And it's amazing. We, I mean, that intro is very representative of the 30 minutes we spent talking before I hit record today. Because honestly, like, you, you do a lot. You've done a lot. And I, you're not easy to describe, because I you. also there was a lot that I didn't include there, um, and I just I'm I'm curious between like uh, about the connection between you know the 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 work that you're putting out there and the work you're doing now and any concerns you might have about being pigeonholed by the work that you've already 
done. Yeah, I mean, I it's it's funny, Sabrina. Like as a director, one of the things that I've had to do a lot of is pitch, and so yeah. you pitch projects uh, and you pitch yourself. And so, you know, especially in the last few years, like, you know, going to Toronto and Vancouver and L.A. and, you know, pitching myself, it's been like an interesting process of how to, like, counter all of the boxes that people put you in, starting with my name. Yeah. You know, the first part of my pitch is how do I get people comfortable with the fact that this is, you know, an ethnic name, it's a difficult name. They're already nervous. So, you know, right away, it's, you know, when I introduce myself, I'm like, hi, my name is Namisha Mukherjee. I'm a director, but people call me Mish. Immediately, people like sort of relax. They go, oh, I can, I can do Mish. I can, I can say Mish. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, I'm going to have to talk about my documentary work because I'm immensely proud of it. But, you know, when you're going into, you know, when I've been moving into scripted work, they're putting you immediately in a box. Okay, so the first box is documentary. You're a documentary filmmaker. Then it's you worked in factual entertainment. Then it's you're in the ch- you're in the box of working in kids TV. Then it's in the MOW box. And so like I, what I've found is like I literally acknowledge all the boxes and I like I'm like let's be open about the boxes. I'm yeah. comfortable with talking about those boxes and I'm gonna frame this. I'm gonna take. I'm going to be empowered by this process and show you how all of these boxes are actually making me who I am, uh, which is a very you know strong storyteller. Yeah, these are good boxes to be checking off. So yeah. it is like a it's something I've had to like think about. It's not something that just sort of like falls out of my. Mouth. I guess there's a part of me that is angry on your behalf, and I'm not going to put words in your mouth. But the <laughs> fact that you have to do a lot of that work for other people. You know, that you have to do the work of of giving them, you know, uh, like acknowledging that, yes, in the West, my name is difficult to say. And then I'm going to give you the out of a of, you know, a, a shortened version of my name. And then you have to do the, the work of, you know, of being like, I, I contain multitudes and I can do all of these. I've done all these different things, you know, and and I do more. I just I'm I'm I'm. I don't know, like, why am I angry about that? <laughs> I think that's, like, a pro- part of the process. Like, there was yeah. a time where I was angry about it. And actually, like, where I've where I've taken it is that, you know, I've taken it as, okay, I'm a storyteller. How do I tell my story? Yeah. It's really not about um, being angry. It's about communicating. How can I communicate? And if I just start to acknowledge what are the fears that people have, whether it's subconscious or completely open, okay. I'll just acknowledge those fears and then take control of it and like frame it the way I want. <laughs> you know, I'm just, I'm sorry, but what I'm imagining right now is you ever seen um that like, it's like a, a comedy sketch of Obama's anger translator, <laughs> no. where it's like, Obama, like it's actually Obama and he's, he's like saying something. And then there's like um, one of the dudes from Key and Peele at the back just being so, <laughs> Super angry on his behalf because Obama was really good about staying cool. Yeah. So it's like you're the common cool one, and I'm at the back being like, "This sucks! Systemic <laughs> racism! We shouldn't have to do all this work." But I guess the other the other question that I have then involves, you know, because you said you've moved from documentary and then children's television, and then I mean, we're going to talk about you directed a a Christmas movie as well. Yeah. Uh, and you all, and now there's also the reign of Durga, which I'm assuming is not children's television. No, it's you know, not. and so like, do you at this point like know what it is that you want? You know, and is it your job to be like, if you put all this together, then I'm going to be able to do this next thing? You know, or or is it a question of I've done this and I want to go into something totally different? You know, which might not even be a natural continuation of the work I've done before yeah it's a good question because the thing is is like I'm a I'm a director I'm a storyteller so I'm actually not I'm at peace with that idea that I can tell different stories and work in different genres yeah it's the people that I'm pitching to that are that are concerned about can I be what they need and what they want Mm. and so I think that it's 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 a fu- it's like sort of a funny thing because like I'm okay with having all of these things coexist within me. Yeah. It's again trying to show people how these things make me stronger and I I'm focused because yeah. I think you know the 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 with where do you want to go and it's like you know that broad answer is is I want to go wherever I can. Yeah. You know, I want to create my own show. I want to keep I'm producing a documentary right now. I'm 
working, going to be working on second season of Gabby Duran. I want to work in prime time. I want to make a feature. You want to do all these things, but you don't want to sound scattered. And again, it comes down to this idea of like, okay, sometimes people need you to like take take them step by step. So Mm. right now that step by step is like, all right, you need, uh, this is what you're looking for. This is how my stories, you know, my stories align with what you need. And I can, I can enter that, you know, that genre that, you know, one hour or a half hour or whatever. So it's like making it tangible for people. I think like it, like everybody has some, you know, you have all these things you want to do and it's just like focusing it so people can like, understand that information yeah. again understand what you're communicating so like I'm used to like in my head feeling like I want to do all these things yeah. and then when you're like meeting people you're like okay I this is how I can fit into what you need yeah and I guess there's also there is the th- there that you are the thread that runs through all of that as well like you're still it's all different genres but you're the storyteller yeah so I I'm I, I had mentioned in the intro and also before we we, uh, we started recording that I did want to spend some time talking about kind of the films that I love uh, love the most from your from your oeuvre um, because and and especially one of them in particular which I assume has really d- developed you as a storyteller and maybe and mer- and imprinted on you and maybe who knows even affects how you the kind of storyteller that you are today uh and the the two i think that i'm going to spend the most time kind of grilling you on um are 65 red roses and tempest storm because i also specifically with 65 red roses which recently had this massive anniversary gala fundraising screening at you know the venerable vancouver playhouse um it it really happened early in your in your career, right? Like yeah. it was, it was a launching pad. So you know, I maybe tell my listeners a little bit about um, the the development first. Like what started you on that path, and then how it how the experience? Because I mean, that, that's where Oprah was involved, and you were riding the film festival circuit as like a recent film school grad. Like, t- tell me about the like how that changed you, that film. Yeah, I think you know, there's there's sort of two th- two elements to that to that film. Um, which I'll, I'll touch on. So the how did it happen? You know, uh, Philip Lyle, who is the co-director, producer, and co-editor of the film. Yeah, with and me, a classmate of yours, and a classmate yeah. of mine. Uh, he brought the project to me because he had uh, been friends with Ava at UVic, um, and so Ava, of course, was the subject of the film. Uh, you did a great sort of one-liner of what was the story about. You know, she had cystic fibrosis. Um, when kids are little, they can't pronounce cystic fibrosis, so they learned to say sixty-five roses instead. Yeah, so that's where the title of the film came about. It was two thousand seven. We were twenty-three years old when we started making the film, and you on, were all babies. We were babies. <laughs> we were babies, but we didn't feel like babies. That's right. That's the magic of being 23. Yeah. You know, we felt like we came out of film school, like ready to conquer the world. You know, I remember uh, being a PA, you know, coming out of film school and like not wanting to tell my parents that I had like, you know, I had this butt sweep and I was like sweeping cigarette butts as far away from set as possible with a degree. And yet I was super excited because I was working in film like yeah. you know and but at, at some point I realized that you know that could only take me so far the real way I in was to just create your own work yeah and I was lucky that in Phil I found a partner of someone who was willing to take all that risk um, and jump in with me and we started making 65 Red Roses in collaboration with Ava because she was an incredibly cr- powerful creative force herself yeah and she yeah it's definitely like there was the trio of you I mean it was like uh the stars aligned in the sense that you all found each other yeah you know at at that time like I you know I I never knew Ava and yet watching that film I feel like we get a real sense of of who she is as a as a person and the way that she I use the word I'm I'm into the word imprinting this week so but that it really imprinted she really imprinted on on you and thus on on us you know in the in the story that she told with you yeah I mean she what she kind of had figured out at her age was that pretending is a waste of time yeah like I'm just yeah I'm going to be a hundred percent authentically me yeah. at all times and I think that that was not 
something that just happened. I think that was an evolution of who she was. And what was wonderful about meeting her in her early 20s is, is that's time when people are discovering who they want, who they are. And yeah. like that reinvention happens throughout life. But unfortunately for, for us, our friendship ended when she was 25. So I, I got to see that, you know, that final sort of iteration of her. And, and it was um, beautiful and amazing and just unbelievably willing to show you all of the darkness yeah. that exists as well as the beauty. And she was an incredibly beautiful person. Like, and just on like, you know, that exterior level, you know, like she was gorgeous. Yeah. Um, the red the comes from, um, the, the red in 65 Red Roses comes from, I mean, it was her favorite color. And then, you know, when she was better, like when she had had the transplant, her hair went back red yeah, again, yeah. you know, and it was like, and in a lot of the artwork for the film, it's, you know, that's, it's like everything's in, in black and white except yeah. for her hair, hair that, you know, the and hair he, and the, and the, the lung, the, the Organ, whatever organs you had in yeah, the artwork, the yeah, artwork. yeah. Um, but I think she was also very aware, and we t- we were talking about this earlier about the power of social media. She understood the power of images way before Phil and I did, yeah, and to some degree, the way before most people did, yeah, because she was li- uh, communicating on Live Journal, yes. I mean, this is before, you know, people like, you know, my daughter gets up in the morning and wants to watch videos from her favorite YouTubers. You know, it's like like that's which is the norm now, but it is was not the norm back then sharing her story online in the way she did. What's the responsibility you have? Because on the one hand, you know, and she had told me this, like, you know, she had this chronic fatal illness and yet, you know, people were coming up to her saying, you look so stunning, Ava. And she's like. I am, you know, hmm. what she kind of told me, which always stuck with me, it st- has stuck with me, is that you know, supermodels, like she had that model body, she and she was like, I am physically ill, like I cannot eat, I cannot hold anything down. This is, if this is what our barometer is of beauty, like it, I'm dying. That's yeah. that's those two things are what are coexisting in me, and so I think that that never left her, and so while she projected these incredible images of herself that were part of her photography work, she felt a social responsibility to also share what was actually going on in her life Mm. so that there wasn't this sort of idea of glamorizing who she was and what she was going through. And I think that that was part of the reason she wanted to make the documentary and also why she was very strategic even with, with us about saying you have to include these things that are yeah. really ugly to look at and they have you know whether or not you keep them in the film is up to you but I want you to film it what were some of those things like the coughing the and- coughing but there was a scene I remember there's a scene in the film where she was v- having a really bad night her mother was visiting her and nothing particular was happening she was stuck in her room um, but she was like I am not feeling well I'm feeling really bad and she called me to say I think you should film tonight and I said yeah okay we're gonna drop everything and like that was that to have someone like that is so rare like mm. to have someone saying look I'm things are going wrong for me I think this is important and we went in and it's in the film and she's just started sort of having these heaving coughs that were just leading to her just not being able to hold anything into her body and she sort of says she's like I, I there's nothing inside me there's nothing left inside me everything is c- coming out yeah and um and it's in the film and I, the only reason it's in the film is because she called me and said I I am having a really bad night I think you should come and and uh you know I think having worked in documentaries for over 10 years now I I understand the value of having someone collaborate with you on that level that they get it yeah you know that's Incre- like that's incredible and like I can I can I think it is those kind of moments where I feel like I got to know and like we all got to know uh, Ava through the film I'm, I'm curious about what you uh, how she how she affected the responsibility you f- you feel towards your documentary subjects in every project since then you know because I'm assuming not every documentary subject will pick up the you know is is a strategic or as aware or even maybe as um maybe protective of themselves or maybe just in in different different ways thinking about the final product you know so you have to kind of advocate on their behalf when it comes to editing and deciding when you are filming and so so how did she how did she affect you since then and what kind of documentary or what kind of responsibility do you feel towards your documentary subjects I think what you just 
kind of said encapsulates it that what I understood was like, you know, Ava could advocate for herself, but there's a lot of people that can't. And yeah. so my role as the director is not just to tell the story that I think is the best story. Now, some people would argue with that. Yeah. And I totally respect that because there's all kinds of different ways to direct. But I think what I understood from the experience of 65 at Rose is what, what was the kind of director I wanted to be in terms of dealing with this sort of subject matter and you see that in Tempest Storm because mm. you know I felt an enormous responsibility and in some ways I was you know I was called out for it of protecting my subject you know from even herself because mm. you know it there's the easy thing to do there was the easy thing to do and there was the hard thing to do and yeah. I had to make that decision of like what did I want to do in terms of how did I want to shape that story yeah because you will see something also and I, I I feel like that with Tempest Storm is that like I like no granted it's been a while since I watched the film but I remember watching it and being like I think she thinks of herself this one way and yes. we're seeing a different picture and then it's kind of out of out of step and yet I didn't feel like you exploited that yeah either I mean she still very much had a had her voice in yeah. in that film, yeah. yeah. But then at the same time, it's like, does it matter? How, how, like, and should it matter how happy she's going to be when she sits down to watch it? Some people would say no, yeah. Um, and I I understand that argument for sure, and I think it's a case by case basis. Um, with Tempest, I knew that I wanted to be able to share the whole experience with her, mm. which was that this was her film as much as it was my film. I felt that also with Ava, yeah. and then again with Blood Relative. And so, you know, when you make a film and you know that the person is not going to be able to handle it, yeah. uh, it means that that life of that film after that is going to be a very you know it was not something I wanted to embark on a yeah. process of releasing the film without her uh, being on board yeah we famously in, in Vancouver I mean there was that um the film about the guy that's called the sandwich Nazi yeah and was, I know <laughs> you know which was very like and you know he, sandwich Nazi came after Lewis and the yeah. team in the in the press and the police were involved at the screening and it's like that I mean obviously worst case scenario yeah. you know but you want like you know I guess it's also I mean you seem like a very um empathetic person as well, you know, and that's something that we, we talked about with when we had Kevin Eastwood in here and talking about documentary and the kind of empathy that, you know, that a lot of documentary filmmakers, you know, wrestle, wrestle with, you know, when they are s sitting down to, to both film and edit, you yeah. know. And I think, like, just to tie in with the, what you were asking earlier about 65, I think 65, because that film was such a success, mm. and you know we were 25 years old and we had finished this film and it was, you know, Oprah had given it her endorsement, you know, that film allowed me to make other films and, and allowed me to make Tempest Storm the way that I made it, mm. because I, it's, it's almost like sometimes when you have these huge successes, and especially early on, they give you like a little bit of freedom to try something different. Yeah. And, you know, I was talking with Dan Mangan about it because Dan, you know, I performed at, at the gala event for 65 Red Roses and he's a, he's been a huge supporter of that film. And, and I'm, I'm very grateful that I know him. And, you know, Dan was told talking about his own music and his trajectory in that 10 years after, you know, the film, because he also has had, um, you know, ups and downs. And it was really yeah. wonderful to, to share that sort of, conversation with him about like what comes out of you know these huge successes early on and you want to as an artist push yourself into different to try different things and with Tempest you know we, I tried something different and it was whether it landed or not I'm incredibly proud of that film yes. and I also to me the biggest thing was I had to be able to stand by that film with her yeah. and could I do that at the end of the day and, and I was able to do that and I, I think that it also, that experience kind of led me to realize, you know, it's time to move on from documentary into scripted. Oh. Um, you know, I think Have that you that moved on from documentary? I Well, I'm producing a film called Jacinta with a, a first-time filmmaker who's an incredible photographer. Her name is uh, Jessica Earnshaw. She's based in New York. And so I think 
I love documentary and I've, I, I love it, but what it takes to make a documentary, it's like these are real people, it's their real lives, the film doesn't end once you're done shooting. Yeah. It, it continues to unfold as I realized 10 years later with, with Ava and her story. And I think that I, uh, you know, I realized that, you know, it's, there is a freedom that comes from working in scripted that I was excited to, to explore. Um, a freedom that comes from working in scripted. I, fi- I guess I find that, well, one, I'm so excited that you've brought the word freedom in because that's so <laughs> much so much to talk about um, with that word. But I would have thought it would be the opposite, you know, because sc- scripted, it feels like there's more, I mean, there are more players, right? And there's mm-hmm. more, more stakeholders. Mm-hmm. And, you know, documentary, it's like... A, I guess my idea is that like, okay, we're going to start filming. It's a leap of faith. You know, we're going to see where this goes. And like, tell me about what what freedom you see in, or was it the freedom of just being like, I'm going to try something new and there's associated freedom that comes from that? No, I think it's more leaning to the first part of what you said, which is that, you know, in documentary, the, the misconception with documentary, or at least the ways that I approached documentary, was that it is just, you know, follow, run and gun. But that was never the way that we made our films mm. and the way I've, I've made my films. It was an incredible amount of writing and pitching and crafting in terms of the story of what you're hoping will, unhap- will happen. And a lot of storytelling, you know, is... Uh, since we we approached our documentaries in very in a very narrative way, it was you needed the setups in order to have the payoffs. So mm. you have storylines that are unfolding in all of these different ways, and if you don't ask the right question at the right time, there will be no setup, and then that storyline won't unfold the way you thought. But that one did, and did you get the pieces? And it was like balancing multiple films within a film and you're working with non-actors that have never been in a film before don't necessarily understand the process it's their story they're incredibly vulnerable uh and then you know the process of raising the film the money for the film and then finding distribution for the film and then the release of the film and will they be able to okay the subjects be able to handle the release of the film i i think like for me the whole process of it as you're describing it was like the the sense of freedom i was feeling was like oh okay and then it became completely oppressive i'm like okay it's like i mean i love it i love it and of course you know there's like but you know you're doing you know i produced my films as well and in the edit you you have to be completely uh, able to re-script the whole film again yeah. and re-examine the film with what you have and like it's hours and out for us it was you know hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage yeah and and then it's it's a in this weird place between journalism and fiction because you know to me it's important you have to have the facts right um, and you're you're doing it a lot. Of, sometimes you're operating really alone, and it can be a very lonely process. Yeah. And I think that um, you know that and that social responsibility you you carry with you. These are you know sometimes you're dealing with people who are very mentally unstable. How are, how this film is going to impact their actual life? Yeah. You know they have to go get up and go to work the next day yeah. after this film has been released that they had no control over the edit of. And so these are the sort of things that weigh on you and keep you up at night, you know, years and years after you made the film. Um, With scripted, you know, the freedom that I saw in the scripted was that you are, you know, developing a story that can change, but you're writing, you're working from a script. People are coming in who are actors, who are bringing their talent and skill set, but everyone's there because they want to be there. There's no life in danger on the set and you're collaborating with a team of people who are there to support you right so I think to me these were the things that I saw as opportunities Sherry like it's the responsibility has been more evenly distributed yeah wow that's just like my take on it well I mean it's your life. It's your take. Yeah. Is of course valid. <laughs> um, I, I'm I'm curious though, and before we go and we talk a bit more about uh, about this your adventures in scripted land. Um, well, one, what did Tempest end up thinking about the about the film? You know, Tempest. I showed her the film for the first time. She was in at Hot Dog. She saw it with a sold out audience. Um, that was oh, all okay. on purpose. It was yeah. like you know, she needed to get out of her head. She needed to be with a, her whole. Uh, career was based on that audience uh, engagement and she needed that and I think she was stunned you know for her there's still parts of that film that are very hard for her to watch yeah 
but she was able to absorb the film and and get on board with the film and ultimately promote the film yeah um and so i think that it was made in a way that she could uh yeah that she could it didn't um it didn't break her uh and and she i i think that i was uh very aware that you know certain things were gonna you know certain things that where she is at in her stage of life and what she's dealt with in her life yeah um there's certain things she just didn't need to be put through so yeah. i you know I, I can see also like just what i remember from about, about her from watching the film the it was probably best that she was sitting there probably all dressed up oh yeah surrounded <laughs> by by people and their energy as opposed to they were sitting by yourself at home watching the film on a laptop like that must have yeah. been uh I don't want to say less than the blow because it's a beautiful film, but like maybe like just given her the opportunity to see it through other people's eyes, yeah. you know, as as well. Um, you know, as somebody who I guess is, well, okay, are you saying never say never to documentary again, or would you entertain the possibility of doing one again in the future? I would absolutely do one again in the future, yeah. and I think that's why I, I took on this role of producing uh, for the film Jacinta. But yeah. I. I think that I it, it was time for me to to grow and to try you know to to move into things that I'd always wanted to do and I just wasn't doing them because I was on these projects that were taking you know three four years mm. of of your life and it was full to full on yeah and so I think it was time it was definitely time like I was ready yeah. I was ready for a change so as somebody then who has who has created such exciting doc- documentary works in Canada there are. Uh, but who is who is stepping away, possibly temporarily, possibly coming back? Um, let can we talk a little bit about the current climate of documentary filmmaking in Canada? Because as somebody who loves documentary, I found this to be a very exciting you know last few years. Like I'm looking at some of the the voices that I'm seeing you know who are creating work. People like Marie Clements and Joella Caballu and Charles Wilkinson and Baljeet Sangra and Dr. Tasha Hubbard and Kevin Eastwood. You know, like I'm it it makes me very. Um, Inspired, and I'm always grateful for the mirrors that they're holding up at our society. But like, do you do you like what is a Canadian documentary? Like, is there is there even such a thing? And and like, why are we doing it so well? (laughs) Yeah, I think you know it's that that looking for that on authenticity and truth. I think that documentaries, you know, Canadians are credited with helping to to evolve the concept of documentaries and nonfiction filmmaking. Yeah. And I think that our identity, uh, you know, as a people is connected to this idea as, you know, um, being empathetic and looking for looking, seeking the truth, um, which is, mm. you know, and I think that to me, those are, you know, it's seeking the truth even when it's uncomfortable. And I think for Canadians who are considered very polite in documentary filmmaking, I think we've found a way of, you know, pushing back against that idea that we're just polite. You know, I think that we have something in us that wants us to, hmm. to you know, find the things that are dark and examine them and explore them. And documentaries are part of our history. So I think that's a, it's a genre that we've crafted, a, you know, a voice in. Yeah, a powerful voice, and, and I think also coupled with the timing, in recent years, you know, sixty five Red Roses was uh, uh, picked up by Netflix. Um, you know, at a time where Netflix was still this you know new thing in twenty ten, it's hard to believe that nine years ago Netflix was still this you know sort of. Uh, they were sending out DVDs, right? Yeah, yeah. My roommate <laughs> was getting them, and uh, and but you know what happened with with Netflix is Netflix equalized the genre so that it became a legitimate genre. It wasn't relegated renegated to this like sort of back corner under documentaries. They literally mixed in documentaries with fiction, yeah. and so people started. And, you know, with the rise of, you know, factual and lifestyle entertainment, I think people sought documentaries as as an escape from that. Yeah. You know, like the the game show sort of type things or, you know, Real Housewives where it's like scripted but with non-actors. And I think people start to really have a sense of like, I can tell when something's not real. Yeah. I want to I want to see. I, I'm show me out. real. Show me. Yeah. Real. Um, you know, reality TV is such a misleading name for yeah. that type of storytelling because it's not, right? Yeah. Um, and so with documentaries, I found like people suddenly were, were watching documentaries and talking about them in a way they never had before. And yeah. we sort of saw that transition. I've seen that transition happen as I've like evolved as a documentary filmmaker, which has yeah. been really exciting because there was a time where it was like, you know, when are you going to make a real film? 
you know, <laughs> and like mm. that, you know, was something I had to deal with for quite a while early yeah. on. So, can, can I ask? We haven't we haven't really talked about your origin story yet, but I'm I'm curious about what your what your family, uh, you know, going into film, um, you did mention that you didn't want to tell your parents that you were sweeping up, you know, <laughs> like cigarette butts and like, but what, what, what have they thought about uh, your career path? I'm assuming some of the early success that you had, including, you know, um, winning all of those awards and having N65 Red Roses, having the journey that they did might have less, if they were not keen on it, that might have lessened the blow a little bit yeah 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 you know I've been really fortunate that you know when I applied to the film production program as an undergrad at UBC I was on the path of English lit and I'd sort of thought I was going to maybe become a teacher hmm. it wasn't something I really wanted but I was sort of on this path yeah like what I'd... else well I mean I got an English lit degree it's like what else do you do yeah. you be a teacher or be a journalist yeah, yeah. and you've also and you also <laughs> like have so many credits and you're like now I have to do this because this is all I have yeah um and my when I applied to the film production program and I didn't get in I got shortlisted the mm. first time it's I, very competitive because they only accept like a very small number of like yeah. less than 20 right it was at the time it was 15 people yeah and uh, I told my mom, you know, I, I said, I, I really want this. Like, this is something I, I, I'm not going to take no for an answer. I'm going to apply next year. Yeah. And this sort of just shows, kind of frames my parents. Like, they, my mom, both of them agreed, like, they would help me buy a camera that I needed to go. And, like, for them, it's like, if you're going to do something, you better do it well. You yeah. better have what you need and go do it. And so they sort of helped me invest in that initial investment and then I got in. And I think what that also taught me was to just be very open with them yeah. about the whole process. And I've, like, t always told them, like, what is involved, what is happening. Both, you know, sometimes, like, maybe too much information, but also the financial side of this. Like, what's happening with the budget? Yeah. How have we gone over? Why did we go over? And I think just that transparency with them has, like, been comforting for them because of who they are. Yeah. That they felt like they understood it. And then my brother, who's been, you know, who's gone and, like, is, like, co-founded a company as a startup. What's been really interesting for my parents is, like, both of their kids, you know, my brother has a master's and did engineering, and we've both sort of ended up in the situation where we are, like, operating our own, you know, our own brand, our own business. Mm. And I think that that, to them, they see the value of working for yourself, yeah. you know? And I think that, but I think it was, again, being really honest with them about the, the failures and the successes. Yeah. And so they, because of that, they really share in the successes. Yeah. That's fascinating. I love I, I love talking about parents and teachers, yeah. but parents is yeah. like, you know, because there's there's uh, th this idea for a lot of parents, especially of actors, the actors that come through, like that there's a concern that it's going to be unstable, you know, that there's something about, you know, the entertainment realm or the, right. the storytelling realm that that. Uh, is not going to be able to provide a good right. a good life. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's always interesting to see the various reactions, you know, that, that parents have. And if I'm remembering correctly, you, you brought your parents with you to the Women in Film Spotlight Awards, right, in 2014? Like, I, I have this memory of, like, me. yeah. <laughs> I couldn't be there. I was pitching Tempest Storm That's at right. the Because yeah. I'm like, I feel like I've met your oh, parents yeah. or something. Yeah. My parents went in my place. Yeah, and super proud and kind of stole the whole show. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. had the best time. I, you know, there's all these photos of them with, like, Don from Finale, and, like, they had a great great time and I think but I think the the you know the one thing I would probably want to like make clear is like for for me because they trusted me I took that very seriously yeah. like there was no option of like not giving it 150 yeah. percent like it had to like you know I've had to move back in with my parents after finishing films like you know, again, there was this like openness and transparency, but it was always about what's the big long game here? Where yeah. do I see myself? This isn't just me just making these rash like decisions to make these films. You know, the payoff of the films where they always led me to something else. And mm -hmm. like it, because of that, it took me longer to probably become financially stable. But again, I think they saw the value in me betting on myself. Yeah. Um, even if it was going to take longer because I had a clear idea of where I wanted to go. Yeah. And they knew that this wasn't just for, I wasn't just in it for, you know, to be able to say I'm a director or say I'm a filmmaker. Yeah. It was like, no, I really want a career here and I want to give something back. And so I think because of that, they've like, again, really enjoyed like gala spotlight awards <laughs> you know it's so party. funny because I, I didn't remember that until you were talking and I asked you I'm like wait a second 
I remember they were the life of the party. I because I was I just remember I kept looking over because after the award ceremony, there's all these photos. I just kept seeing them looking at different parts of oh, the yeah. room, just smiling, <laughs> talk, shaking hands, like. My dad was kind of like that a few years later. I'm, this isn't a flex, but I totally won an award too. And he was exactly he was exactly the same. That's awesome. What did you win? I won um, the very first uh, Iris Award. So it was uh, from Women in Film and TV Vancouver, and it was uh, to kind of to recognize the work that, like, well, this kind of work that I'm doing to yeah. to elevate and amplify uh, storytellers like yourself. Amazing. And you took yeah. your dad. Oh, I I brought the whole family, but my dad was like he was walking around like you know I and you know what now that I'm a parent like I get that sense of that sense of pride for sure you know that sense of like because on one hand it's like yes I like you know my daughter she got she got like 102 percent on her on her geography test recently which is hanging on the fridge of this office and uh, on one hand I'm like yes that's her accomplishment you know but I'm so proud of her too. You know, and it's it's like a different kind of feeling that I don't think. Um, well, that I I understand more. Like I understand my parents more now that I'm a I'm a parent totally. myself. Yeah, totally. Okay, we're gonna take a break, and uh, when we come back, we are going to talk about. Um, I don't want to say this crossover from because I kind of I kind of think you're gonna go and you're gonna tell some more documentary stories at some point in the future. I don't, I just get the sense I don't want to say never say never with you because you know you are I mean you are a storyteller you're gonna if there's a story to tell you're gonna tell it but I want to talk about this move this expansion into episodic television uh, which includes children's television which includes uh, uh, Sammy Brady slash Allison Sweeney's uh, uh, Chronicle Mysteries uh, and which also includes a uh, a Christmas movie, you know, which is I just find just so I, I, I'm just I'm fascinated by just the phenomena because like five years ago was not the same kind of ravenous appetite for these films. But my gosh, it's an incredible industry and there's a lot of just love and humor uh, tied up in these films. So I want to talk about that. Is that OK? That would be great. OK, great. Let's take that break. This week, the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is brought to you by the BC branch of the Directors Guild of Canada. And we are so lucky to be joined once again by award-winning director Zach Lepofsky. Zach! Hi. How are you? I'm, I'm excited to be back. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you. you. You went and you came back and you went and you came back to tell us something that we don't know about the DGC BC. Now, I have heard that there are incredible benefits for the members of the DGC. That's right. You know, when you're starting out and you're an indie filmmaker and you're just getting by from paycheck to paycheck, one of the things you don't think about is once you join the guild, uh, you know, they take some of your money each paycheck. What the hell? Why is the guild doing that? Well, what they're doing is you, they pay for a whole bunch of benefits. So you get amazing health care, the best health care in the business. Um, you might think, well, we already get health care. We live in Canada. What, what the heck? But they give you all sorts of bonuses, things like covering all your dentist bills, covering uh, if you need any help in any way, like say uh, you get injured or say even if you have like substance abuse issues, they pay for your treatment to get you oh, back, wow. you know, get back out into the workforce. Um, and they cover all your retirement. And so when you're after you've made 20 movies and you've you know sunsetted over your career and you're ready to relax you know the guild has put away all your pension and so you can retire and all that type of stuff so basically all the benefits you would get if you had a normal sort of boring job at like an accounting <laughs> firm or something uh, you'd have great benefits the guild does that for filmmakers and for um, ADs and location managers and all the other people they represent so it's a pretty sweet deal is it true that members can get massages you get uh, I think it's like four massages a year covered for free. So that sounds, if if you're already just wondering why should I be in the DGC, <laughs> free massages. That sounds pretty good to me. Well, and we all know that directors work very hard. Zach, where can people go to learn more about becoming a member of the DGC? Uh, well, you can check out our new campaign called Just Watch Us at directors.ca, which is an incredible tool for finding directors and learning about all the stuff that we have going on. And you can follow us at Just Watch DGC on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you, Zach. Thanks. Okay, so tell me about then your your transition into uh, episodic television, um, especially as somebody who has had achieved so much sex. sex <laughs> <laughs> wow, um, who has achieved so much success 
Do you mind if we don't edit that out? I feel like we should just leave that in. <laughs> no, I think you can leave. You can leave it. In. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, who I has have a good life? <laughs> yeah, you have a good life. Um, I, your husband was just on the cover of the Courier, <laughs> jumping out of Oscar the Grouch's trash can because yeah. he is uh, one of the only directors in this country who has directed on segments on Sesame Street, and he got to visit Sesame Street. And I wrote an article about that. So yeah, Mark Radloff. Yes. Yes. Uh, so much success early on in the documentary feature realm, and and now you have moved into episodic television. So how would you describe how your move has been? I'm just going to sit here and not speak for the next minute or two. Yeah, it was like, you know, it was a journey. I I had, you know, in 2015, I, I um, you know, actually Laura Adkin, who's a friend of mine and an actress and a filmmaker. And, and she, her, I saw her photo in the... Uh, that press release yesterday for selected. the women in the director's chair. Yeah. I, we love Laura Atkin here at Wybear Screen Scene. We're big fans. We love Laura. She's yeah. fantastic. And sh- when she, um, we were at the CFC barbecue probably five or six years ago, and she was like, you know, you need to shadow. She she was kind of the one telling me, you need to shadow. You need to shadow on these shows. That's how you get into scripted. That's how you get into TV. Um, and so she actually, like, you know, went up to a director at at that barbecue um, who I ended up knowing, James Dennison, and said, you know, my friend Amisha needs to shadow you, and uh, and she basically got me my first shadow gig, and I ended that's up so Laura, so Laura, right? <laughs> like she was like, this is what you need to do. Let's make it happen. And so, um, and I think I'm very lucky that I've had people like that in my life. You know, yeah. that I've been like, you know what, like. Uh, you just need to push and here I'm going to push you um, and my husband Mark's done that and Laura's been there for me to do that multiple times and so I ended up shadowing on Bitten I shadowed Bruce McDonald and so I'd done the shadowing I shadowed you know basically on different shows for about a year Can you tell me about um, shadowing because I mean that's come up a few times uh, yeah. in like in our series but we haven't actually talked about what exactly it is Yeah so I'm um, I'm part of like the committee that's working with the Just Watch Us campaign for the Directors Guild of Canada and yes. Zach Lepofsky, uh, who is just brilliant. Yeah, uh, brilliant. He's a big fan of yours. <laughs> he, Zach is like, yeah, he's an incredible human being, and he basically said, "This ha- we have to stop calling it shadowing. We have to start calling it director observing." And I was just so happy when he said that because, you know, as someone who shadowed. Um, you know, it's a very at its best. You are really are learning from like the best in our industry, and mm. at its worst, you feel like you know you're a student again. And the crew is like, "Why are you here?" And you're, you know, you know, in some rare cases, but it's terrible. You end up getting you know people coffee, and you're just never really going to be positioning yourself to actually walk yeah. into that role at that point. And so I think that there is a you know there is a place for observing where you basically are following the director on set. Usually you need network approval. It's not very easy to get mm. in, the, in the door. But you your role is to observe. So I was okay with that being a documentary filmmaker. I'm used to observing. But for most people, it is an incredibly humbling experience where you don't actually get to participate in the creative at all no one actually is asking you for your opinion ever and you are there to basically be invisible yeah but at the same time you're supposed to use it as an opportunity to network and you know position yourself to hopefully get on a show yeah um and i i'm talking about it in the way that i have experienced director observing shadowing because i know that that idea and concept has evolved and been very different in the past yeah uh, in this country but um you know I think that for me what was really frustrating about it was I was like what next like what does this actually lead to yeah you know and you're un- often unpaid so you're there full-time you know feeling like you're supposed to be invisible and watching and learning but for no pay and for and at this point you know I had made three feature documentaries I'd made a number of short films I was not new to the industry yeah. uh, but I was definitely in that emerging box and I to some degree it's always funny I think I might still be in that you know some some people might still call me emerging which is really weird you've been in the industry 10 years hmm. and so but you know it was also a time where things were changing there was a discussion it was before the me too movement and before like you know the sort of open discussion about female directors but there definitely was a problem and they were seeing it yeah and so the dgc had the directors guild of ontario had a director mentorship and i got that director mentorship and I, I mentored under Gail Harvey, and I remember her being very like, "Wow, Gail is a <laughs> wonderful human being." And she was like, "Why aren't you directing like for scripted? I don't, I don't understand." I was like, "Well, I've been shadowing," and she's like, "You need to push." You know, she again was like, "You, you need to push. You need to keep. Don't give up on this." Because I was sort of, I'd been working for Vice. I'd been, you know, I was, I was a successful series director uh, in Factual, 
And I was taking time out to sort of do this, and I was sort of wondering if it was going to be worth it. And she was really like, you need to keep doing it. And around that time, uh, Laura recommended me to Zach um, because he was doing this. Are, I love these people who are just pushing you and yeah. and just like make <laughs> like it's like where where you you for whatever reason were unable to like close the gap or or you needed that that push like these people stepped up you can't do it on your own yeah that's wonderful you really can't do it on your own so I think you have to be prepared for those opportunities for sure but you also like those opportunities don't just get handed to you they they involve actual people like seeing something in you and and you know Zach had taken it upon himself with with Omni and Brian Hamilton to create this pilot program that was like you know female directors I kind of call it survivor for female directors basically (laughs) five female directors would come in and shadow for a block each Uh, I shadowed Kari Andrews he's a wonderful director and you would basically one director would be called back who would shadow under a Zach on the first season and then the hope was that maybe you would maybe be positioned to get your you know get an episode and so I was the person called back and then I you know was sort of waiting and at this time I was like okay I've done shadow two blocks on the show for Disney um I, I really just don't know what I'm supposed to do next now. Maybe I'm just going to go back into documentary. And then Brian Hamilton had told me about this program called the Two Times More Women in View Programs Through Sinking Ship. It was on an Amazon series called Dino Dana. Mm. And they were picking three female directors from across Canada. And what was great about that program was you would shadow, but then you'd get an episode. Yeah. And I got that along with uh, my friend Heather Hawthorne Doyle from Vancouver. Yeah. So I was living in Toronto, but I was hopping back and forth yeah. at the time. And um, and I got that program. And basically, before I even finished that episode, I got a call from Zach being like, send me your rough cut. And, you know, he took it to the network. And I ended up getting a half-hour episode on Disney's Mech X4, which I won the Leo Award for last year. Yeah. So that was my first, you know, real halftime show. And it kind of what was amazing about that was I was basically everything I'd been told I couldn't do as a, a documentary filmmaker, as a female director. That show had action. It had VFX. It had, was a teen drama comedy. It was like, you know, doing all these things that I'd been told I wouldn't be able to do. And I, I just, you know, went and did them and, you know, didn't. So is a lesson there, is that a lesson for you or is that a lesson for people who are in positions of of power who are saying no no you can't do that it's a lesson for both of us because I think you know until I stepped into that role until someone said you can do this and like gave me the opportunity and like really Zach you know said this is your episode you know you do it like direct direct the episode and um and was so you know well well, I will share this because this just kind of shows you I think like the where I was in my head you know, the first day of directing on Mech X4, after Zach came up to me, he said, you know, instead of saying, can we cut, just say cut. And it was such like a, wow. it was such a powerful note that changed the way that I've, you know, direct, it has changed me as a director because I was still asking permission. Yeah. Even though I was in that role uh, and I'd been a director for 10, you know, at that point almost 10 years, I, I still was asking permission to be there. Yeah, there's and, there's the freedom. Yeah, again. And, and he said, you know, you can just say cut. And I was like, fuck yeah, I'm going to just yeah, say cut. fuck yeah. <laughs> so it was like, you know, I think that that, um, in terms of owning it and having that confidence, you know, that that show helped, helped me and then coming off of that, you know, I ended up on the first season of Gabby Duran and the Incitables and I got a block. And, you know, again, it was like, how can I make this my own? How can I, like, yeah. step into this role? And I'm not I'm not interviewing for this job. I have the job. Yes. You know. Oh, my God. I feel I feel so empowered hearing that. We Please, let's talk about the uh, Christmas movie. <laughs> <laughs> that you directed, starring Alison Sweeney uh, from Chronicle Mysteries. So and, that's not uh, the Christmas movie. So the Christmas movie. You're is right. For Sorry, I'm getting all. Oh my god, I you're did just two movies too this year, yeah. busy, <laughs> and I love it. All right. Well, first of all, talk to me about Alison Sweeney um, and what you learned from her, because as somebody who's been following her career for more than two decades now, I know that she has also moved from acting and expanded. Yeah. You know. Uh, what she is doing and what she's interested in working on and she's producing. Yeah. Right? So so tell me about what you learned from from Ali Sweeney. What I learned from Alison Sweeney is that, you know, wi- women 
it was the first time that I, you know, like, it was the first time in a long time that I had a woman in a position of power that looked at who I was and said, like, yes, you can do this. Like, I'm going to give you this opportunity. And who was actually there to, like, and who wholly meant it and, like, wanted me to succeed. Yeah. And I, I say that because I think it's, takes women and men in those positions. Yeah, you've been, you've definitely, the, the the mentors and the people who have been pushing you and pulling you have have been from from both genders. Yeah. And, and actually the gender is a spectrum. So it's, yeah. I'm just saying, it's not just women. Yeah, it's yeah. not just women and, and it's not just men. So I think like what was great about her was, you know, I met with her and she had, um, you know, for her, the Chronicle mystery is is like coming from a place that she loves true crime. Yeah, and Alice, Allie is like like she listens to podcasts, she watched documentaries. She so was she, like somebody in her family is in law enforcement. Yeah, her, or something? her husband is. She's like married to a cop. Yeah, right? and so yeah. she has this amazing BS radar, and like she knows if you're not being authentic and yeah. real. And I like we immediately clicked and had a very long, um, you know, it was we met for drinks and it was like. It, it was a long session of just talking. Yeah. And they hadn't had a female director yet on Chronicle Mysteries, and I had met with Hallmark already. But really, it was, you know, to me, it was Hallmark and Allie both, you know, she knew what I'd done. You know, I was coming off of these documentaries and working in, in kids' TV, and the question was, would I be able to do this, you know, it's a feature-length film for television. Yeah. And, uh and, you know, coming out of that, she was like, yes, yes, I totally want you to do this. And you're the right fit. You're the yeah. right person. This isn't just me handing you a, throwing you a bone here. You are actually the right person yeah. for this. And um, and then completely, wholly, like, supported me in that process of saying, yes, this is your, make this your own. And and I did. And, and the results were great. And I had an, an incredible time because I grew up watching, you know, X-Files and Murder, She Wrote and all these, you know, I loved, mur- I love murder mysteries. Yeah. Like Gosford Park is like, I'm glad you said mysteries and not just be like, I love murder. <laughs> yeah. Like- <laughs> I, love a, I love a good whodunit, right? Yeah. And so like, it was great to actually get to do that and, uh, and, you know, shoot a film in 14 days, you know, like, oh, um, so wow. it was like, that was a pretty insane sort of first experience of working on, a, you know, a long form for TV. Like yeah. I was like, holy crap, like, the industry is changing. Yeah. And this is pretty awesome. And, like, like to me, it's, like, you just where the work is. You want to you keep working on yeah. things with good people. And so then that led to the Christmas movie. And the Christmas movie, you were telling me uh, one of the, the remarkable things, which, I mean, shouldn't be remarkable, and yet we don't often get to see on television, you know, is that it is, uh, it's, it's people from different cultural backgrounds. It's a, it's a mixed race couple, right? Yeah, I thought, you know, when I heard Vanessa Lachey was attached to Vanessa the project, <laughs> and she's like an incredible human being, like, mm. oh my God, what a powerhouse. Um, and just like a down to earth, wonderful person, yeah. um, and a beautiful actress. Uh, she was going to be the star with Christopher Russell. And I yeah. was like, this is, like, very cool to me. I was like, this is very cool. This is an interracial couple. I'm in an interracial couple. Yeah. You know, I have a biracial child. Like, I was like, this is, like, and it, it, what I loved about the script was that the, it wasn't, they weren't making a thing of it. She was just the love interest yeah. in, the, in the show. And it was, like, not about where she came from or any of that. It was just, like, she's the right person for the part. This is, you know, she's going to she's gonna be the star. And... And it was to me, there was like a lot of power in being a part of something like that. Yeah. And um, and I had so much fun, and both of them are just like the best. Yeah. And um, I I've also I've been a fan of um, Chris Russell. First of all, this is totally me, like editorializing or whatever. He looks like a real life Disney prince, like <laughs> walking like he's and he and I think part of that of why I see him that way is because he was in an in another interracial couple on television uh, with Lee Majdub on Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, he literally played a Disney prince. And he had pink hair and he had scissor sword and he was just amazing. So like, so that, like, I'm just, I'm a fan. But you told me that there are also puppies in this. There's puppies in it. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's a, I think that was like what was like so fun about it. It was like, okay, so this is going to be, um, it's like a rom-com, but with a lot of heart. And there's, you know, it's basically, you know, again, of those boxes, like I can do a Christmas movie. I can work with dogs. I can, you know, you're, you're checking off those boxes. But 
what I think was really great about this whole experience and working with Nancy Bennett, who was the EP um, and Lighthouse, was that there was like a real feeling of like, how can we make this, elevate this work and make it the best it can be? Yeah. And it again, it was like a real collaboration of like taking that script and like really trying to put as much heart and like, you know, honesty in it as possible, even though it's a Christmas movie and even though it's a rom-com, it's like, I think, you know, the audience watching, like, yes, they want to escape, but they also want to feel like they're really, this is a real journey. Yeah. And, you know, I think that I, I don't believe that you can just like throw these things together and that people will just consume it like you know, just because it's Chris got Christmas yeah. in the well, title. especially because it's such a competitive field now. Totally. Anyways. Totally. And like, I really felt like when the thing about Vanessa and Chris is like, you know, they could have, you know, on these things, you're 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 worried going into it. Like, is this just gonna be like, you know, me being like, you know, really caring, and everybody else just being like, oh, it's just another Christmas movie. But like, the whole team really wanted, and especially the Vancouver crew. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was a really amazing group of people. And Chris and Vanessa put, like, their whole heart into it. Like, yeah. really questioning it, really wanting to make sure that it made sense. And I, like, yeah, I love them both for that. And it was, like, really, you know, I, it ended up being such a wonderful way to end the year to get to work with uh, with both of them. And I'm really excited. The film releases December 7th. It's called Christmas Unleashed. And it's just really fun. Christmas Unleashed. Fun I movie. love it. And do, did you film in cold weather? Or was this one of these, like, we're filming a Christmas movie. Think cold. It's actually June. Yeah. It, yeah. You know, we, uh, <laughs> you know, it was like we went through every sort of weather. It was shot in August into September. So oh, it was, wow. It was ridiculous. Um, but, again, you know, I think you know, taking a page out of the site, you know, from even as a student filmmaker, it's like what you kind of learn early on is people will forgive anything. It's mm. really about the characters and it's really about the story. And so, like, there's no snow in this movie. And, you know, like, our production designer and team, like, we did the best, like, we could. Um, and I think it is convincing in terms of it's set in North Carolina, so it didn't need snow and it yeah. doesn't need those things. But um, we definitely made Vancouver look as Christmassy as we could. Yeah. Um, and again, I think that the fact that Vanessa and Chris have like this great chemistry and are so, you know, wonderful in it. What's uh, the premise of the film? It's about, you know, I really, what I really am always interested in is this idea of timing in life. And so yeah. the idea was these two people. Um, you know, kind of fell in love, but they were on different paths. They were highly ambitious. They wanted to, you know, the the guy wanted to be, you know, Max wants to be a vet, um, and he's from a small town, and he really loves where he's from. And, you know, uh, Vanessa's character uh, has, her, her parents had died, and she, you know, wants to sort of pursue law and part of the reason is because her father was a lawyer mm. and she, she gets these amazing she gets this incredible opportunity in New York and there's no nobody is to blame it's just that they both love each other but part of being in love sometimes is saying this is the wrong time and yeah. like, we have to let go and so they choose to sort of let go of each other for and it's no one's fault and then um she comes back and with with the dog like so this dog was their their dog but she she um really becomes her dog and she comes back home after you know avoiding the town for many years and uh and her dog um, uh, takes off and what we kind of sort of realize is the dog is of course you know has his own plans <laughs> as, as dogs do in Lifetime <laughs> oh God, Christmas it sounds, movies it um, sounds but, adorable uh, yeah but then yeah. basically we sort of like see how these two people can like sort of find their way back to each other oh wow are are you a are you a Christmas movie fan? I am a Christmas movie fan. I'm a you know sucker for a good romantic comedy. One of my favorite things in the world is Pride and Prejudice. Mm -hmm. I will wait mm -hmm. you know hours and hours to watch two people kiss at the end. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> I have like no shame in that. You know, I just watched uh, Parasite, like which I loved. So like you know, I don't think like you can be like it's like one or the other. I think you can like absolutely love all kinds of movies. Well, you have definitely taught us that uh, today. I feel like we. Could just talk and talk and talk all day long um, but you'll you will have to come back I do want to end because um, we haven't done usually I do lots of time travel with people we haven't done any time travel really so let's get in the DeLorean 
that's the vessel, this, yeah, the season it. that people are using. I'm such a Doctor Who fan, so I thought it would be the TARDIS, but people have been like mostly choosing the DeLorean. But anyway, let's get into the DeLorean. And I want to go back to, um, uh, let's go to right before you met Ava, because I feel like that was a, a, a big watershed paradigm shifting interaction for you. And, and you have a minute to give yourself some advice. You know, or and the 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 other option is that you don't give yourself any advice at all. But if you had that opportunity, what would you say? You know, would I change anything? No, um, in terms of like what happened in my career. But if I could talk to that person, I would say just like relax, Mm. just relax. It's like you're in such a hurry, and you know, just really just take it all in. Um, Really celebrate those wins and uh and also there's this part of ourselves that thinks that we don't deserve success and because of that we tend to Mm self-sabotage and there what I would just tell myself is is when you're given that chance don't don't think why you shouldn't do it just think why just say yes yeah. Um, you know, I love Tina Fey's bossy pants and it's like one of those things that like, you know, definitely is again, a, gives you a brain shift, like say yes and, and don't just always wait for everything to be perfect. It, mm. It's like, just it's do never it. going to be perfect. Yeah, it's never yeah. going to be perfect. And so you're like robbing yourself of an opportunity just because you're afraid that it's not, you know, exactly right. So, um, yeah, I, I would definitely say a few things, but at the same time, I, you know, being where I am right now, I, I have no regrets. Yeah. That's wonderful. Well, we look forward to celebrating all of your successes uh, as our podcast continues forever. Because <laughs> I have no plans to walk away from this. I love this so much. And and this episode is a perfect example of why. What a wonderful conversation. And I learned a lot, oh, which I really so appreciate. So where can our listeners find you on the social media? On the social media, I'm on Instagram, uh, Facebook, Namisha Mukherjee. Um, yeah, and, and uh, com is my website. So okay. yeah, they can take a look at my work. Wonderful. So I will put that in the footnotes for this episode. I, I will also put links to all the various articles I've written about you uh, <laughs> over the years. To our fans, I say thank you so much for listening please like and subscribe and leave us a review if you are so inclined you can find us at www.yvrscreenscene.com you can follow us on twitter and facebook and instagram at yvr screen scene the yvr screen scene podcast is hosted and executive produced by me sabrina firminger and it's edited by simon firminger we give special thanks to tyson braddock and paul firminger we're family business for technical support and to dane devalet for the original music yvr screen scene is a division of fish flight entertainment join us next time for another deep dive into vancouver's dynamic film and television scene and 